0: It's Jason Thomas's Industry Seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blends All, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Welcome, everybody. It's Industry Seating. It's Sunday. And we finally have the news we've all been waiting for. It's time to go back to racing. And as we, as I record this, I'm getting ready to watch a a NASCAR race here in about two hours, which I don't know that I've ever been so excited for NASCAR in my entire life, but it's something that's live and it's sports related that's going on. So I'm very thankful for it. It feels like it's the, the kickoff, right? It's the return, the debut for all sports, and I could not be more excited for it. I want to thank all the sponsors of this podcast, the Industry Seating Podcast, Pirelli, Blenzol, Works Connection, Plum Creek Funding, Vapor, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia, and Fly Racing. And we're gonna we're gonna get into some of the details of the return to racing here. I'm sure many of you have read and heard by now, right? The the news broke a couple days ago, but that's okay. There are many aspects to this, and uh, Wege and I, Jason Wygant, we did a little Instagram live over on the Fly Racing USA Instagram page. If you want to check that out, where we talk about some of this as well, it's uh, the archive is posted over there. But I, as some of these details unravel, I want to cover them and, and put my little spin on them and and share some of the complications I see, uh, some of the conveniences maybe. I do think there, you know, there are silver linings to this deal. It's not, you know, all bad news for some of the. The quarantining and difficulties that these teams and riders will face, but I think more than anything, it's the most unique Supercross time we've ever seen. Uh, there are so many guidelines and protocols and restrictions that, personally, I never thought would be possible. I would have laughed at you if you, you know, presented a plan like this to our sport, you know, because we are, you know what, for lack of a better term, a free country, and we don't have any sort of collective bargaining agreement in our sport. So trying to force things onto riders and teams is very difficult, especially when you don't have any sort of contract or anything that they've signed off on. You know, this wasn't in the, uh, the rules or bulletins or anything for 2020 that everyone signed at the beginning of the year or a part of the license process, all of this is kind of on the fly and I would be interested to know if there has been any talk of amending, uh, some of that paperwork, but yeah, I think that's, that's challenging. And, and by all means, I'm not a lawyer, but from my limited knowledge of the sports world, you know, trying to say you can do this or you can't do that with your personal freedoms, uh, gets problematic. And I know a lot of that is coming down from, the state governments, right? So I would assume the the governor of Utah or some bureau of the state of Utah has issued guidelines for what's acceptable and what's not and how you can go racing and how you can't. Uh, so as we go through some of those details, just keep that in mind. Uh, I really get frustrated seeing all the criticism of Feld and, and you go on social media or some message boards and you see that and it, it really bums me out because I know that feld is doing absolutely everything they can this isn't you know they're not trying to make this difficult (laughs) if anything they would want this as easy as possible they would want this to be as turnkey as possible to make life easier on both themselves and the teams and racers and also keep in mind that all of these checks and balances that they're going to have to go through the the testing Uh, you know, if you do leave or you have to get tested the first time in, that's all going to come at a cost. That's not going to be free. You know, I I would assume Feld is going to have to absorb those costs. So yes, all of this is very problematic. Having no fans for seven rounds of a series is very problematic. That's a huge hit to their profit and loss statement. It's, it's going to be a very ugly year for Feld entertainment. That would be my guess. Remember, this is the same company that owns Disney on ice. They own the uh, Jurassic world tour. They own lots of things, right? That are all, they all hinge on ticket sales and people having their butts in the seats. And none of that can happen right now. So this is gonna be a very, very difficult time for Feld entertainment. And yeah, I understand that many of you are listening going, well, they can afford it, which is true. I'm sure they can. But if you own your own business, which I'm sure many of you listening do, just like this podcast. This is a private business for myself that I started. So if someone comes to you and says, Hey, you're going to be able to run your business and continue business, but you're going to, you're going to basically lose a ton of money to do so. Yeah. That's going to be difficult to swallow. Whether you can afford it or not is not really the point. No one wants to be in business to lose money. And my belief is that Feld will lose a lot of money in the 2020 year. So that's just my opinion. And my advice is, Hey, maybe take it easy on the criticism of Feld. It's not going very well for their business right now, but getting back on track, we have our schedule. It's finalized, which I was wondering when that was all going to drop. And and keep in mind, things were happening very, very quickly and dates were changing. uh, Cities were changing. None of that was stamped out more than, I'm, I'm going to say, 24 to 48 hours before news dropped. That was still on an ongoing talk because Glendale was still the primary location for this event until it wasn't. And I don't know the singular reason for the move to uh, Salt Lake. I believe that Glendale had asked them for a further date push. That's what I believe happened. I don't have confirmation on that, so don't hold me to it. But I believe they wanted them to go into June before the start date. And that was going to be very difficult because remember, this is a cooperative effort between Feld and MX Sports with the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Series. And they've been very kind to each other and working towards the best goal. And that series has moved a couple times to where now their start is the latest ever for their, their series in in my mind in history as of July 4th. And if they had asked them to move again, to move the start date of that Lucas oil promoter cross series again, further in July, that would have been very, very difficult. And I, I believe they were trying to avoid that at all costs, which in turn created the change to salt Lake so they could keep that schedule. And as we know, Utah has been very, very proactive in luring Supercross in. Uh, the, the talks I've had, they are really the city that, in the state that wants racing overall, way before the coronavirus hit. But just they want us in their state. They wanted the finale of Supercross, Monster Energy Supercross, to be in Utah. And you saw that fundamental shift in the schedule, where we've been in Vegas for the finale for you know going on 30 years. And they moved that to Salt Lake, and that that wasn't by accident or convenience. That was a very dedicated effort by Governor Huntsman, and uh, from what I understand, the Tourism Department of Utah to attract Supercross, and they were going to roll out the red carpet. And I I do believe they're still going to do everything they can to roll out the red carpet. Of course, it's just not going to be where all the fans get to benefit and show up, and we don't have this massive pit party and all the the midweek events that. The, uh, the governor had planned and all these great people in the, the state of Utah had planned. So a little bit of a bummer there, but in the end, if you're looking for some good karma to happen to someone, the state that really wanted Supercross the most and the city that wanted it the most is now getting seven rounds in a row. So I'm I'm pretty happy about that. I love Vegas. Don't get me wrong. You don't have to push me hard to try to go to Vegas, right? I'm actually going there in a month to, uh, work on some projects with Pulp MX. But when the city of Vegas doesn't care about supercross coming or going, they, they literally were completely just, you know, nonchalant about it. They, they are, I'm sure they're happy on some level that it's there, but they make no effort to promote it. From what I understand, they were just kind of shrug their shoulders. If supercross comes or not, it just doesn't move the needle for them. And there's simply too many other things going on for them to be, Worried about supercross, you know, and, and you think about that supercross weekend. There's typically the Kentucky Derby going on. There's always a big fight, you know, a boxing match. We, we were on the same night as many, many Mayweather fights. UFC is obviously is the the flavor of the week for, you know, combat sports. Uh, but we, we've we always battled other events being in Vegas, and it really never caught the city's attention in, from my perspective. So Utah is the big winner there. Another cool aspect for me is it's only right down the road. It's maybe four, four and a half hours drive for me. And yeah, if I wanna fly, which I, I connect there for all of my uh, worldly travels, I connect in Salt Lake more than anywhere else now. And it's about a 41 minute flight from Boise down to Salt Lake. So if I do get allowed to go, and there there are several people who will weigh in on that from Feld to you know my boss at Western Power Sports, will decide if I get to go. Uh, whether it's drive or fly, it's a very easy and convenient trip. Now the question comes in, if I am, and I do get the green light to go, I can't imagine that I'm going to stay in salt Lake or the state of Utah throughout that period. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to want to, and have to come back to Boise to fulfill my obligations at fly racing. and, And it's a very busy time for us as we plan for the 2021 line. So what does that look like? maybe I go to one round and I get my temperature checked and hopefully i pass their, you know, the coronavirus test and, and get to participate. And then I come home for a few rounds and go back. I really don't know what that looks like because everything I'm hearing is that, you know, whether it's an AMA worker or a Feld employee or a rider or team, whoever is attending this event and gets on the accepted list to attend, you are being asked to stay in Utah. And if you do not, you must be tested and get a receive a negative, uh, test before you are allowed back in. Right. And and they're saying there's a 48 hour turnaround time on these tests, which makes it almost impossible to go home, come back, get tested and get, receive your results to, to again, be allowed into the, to the, the venue. So I think without absolutely saying you have to stay, you pretty much have to stay. Just logistically, there's no other way around it. And I I don't believe that that's what Feld wants. I I think they're being forced into that by the powers that be, legislature, you know, bureaucracy uh, to ensure that people aren't exposing other people. So what does that mean for the entire sport? Again, like I said, everyone's going to have to be in Utah. Riders, teams, you know, the, the sport in mass will be basically moving to Utah for a month. And I, I can't do that. I I have way too much going on at work to be in Utah for a month. So who can do that? You know, if you work for one of the industry brands and you have a a very specific purpose at the race, whether it's to service riders or help the teams within, you know, engineering side, whatever the case may be, I highly doubt that they can spend a month in Utah, right? The only people that I think can pull that off are the teams and riders because this is their primary function as a professional is to be at the races. So it's, it gets really dicey as far as how this is all going to go. And I, I don't have any firm answers yet and kind of in a, a holding pattern as to how this looks on our side. And I would, I would assume there are many, many sponsors and industry personnel that are in the same boat. I am kind of wondering what they're gonna do. I've talked to Steve Mathis a little bit. I've talked to Jason Wygant. I think if you're a guy like Steve Mathis right who is, I'm gonna say the preeminent media member right now and that's always a you know an ongoing subject and that's all a matter of opinion. But to me he has the loudest voice in media at the moment. He's gonna have to stay in Utah for a month, I think because he's gonna want to go to all the races. He's not going to be able to commute back and forth to Vegas where he lives but he's also got to do a myriad of podcasts, the Pulp MX show, our Pulp MX fantasy show. All these things have to happen every, literally every day with this this condensed schedule. So he's gonna have to move his whole studio or mobily move it to Utah. I don't see how else he can do it because he absolutely has to be at the race. If they allow him, he has to be there. there there's no other way to cover the sport correctly without being on site and without being able to interact with riders and teams and, and get inside information, especially in these unique times, it will be more critical than ever to have boots on the ground for your, your media outlet and know exactly what's happening, you know, up to the minute. So lots more questions than answers. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about Pirelli tires. They are for me, probably the biggest tire in racing, if you look at everything, if you look at four-wheel, two-wheel, you know, they're a big deal, right? And they have some heavy competition out there, but go watch a Formula One race and get back to me about Pirelli's presence, right? It's a big deal. Uh, I've been affiliated with a lot of tire manufacturers out there, and I have friends that work for other tire manufacturers, and it's uh, it's a pretty competitive marketplace, and everybody does a fantastic job. But it is my job as part of this podcast to tell you about Pirelli. So please go check those guys out. They have a really wide offering for off-road, motocross, supercross, whatever your need may be. And all of you are out there riding, which is awesome. Go try some Pirelli tires. So back to the racing thing. Uh, some of my questions that I I just jotted down some notes on. And these were just right off the top of my head. And I've read through, you know, Jason Wagen did a really good job of summarizing how this would look. If you want to go read that, it's over at racerxonline.com. But I still think there are many questions that they haven't touched on yet, or at least given any real guidance, or maybe they can't. So w- my first was these guys are very much creatures of habit. And I mean, these guys by riders, they have a very strict routine that they follow day in, day out, weekend, week out, and they live by it. And it gives them comfort. And it's how it's just how these guys are able to keep their confidence and keep their their heads on track on, on the right track because they're a lot of guys, they're mental basket cases and confidence is such a fleeting thing. And once you have it, you never want to lose it. And if you don't have it, it's very, very difficult to be your best. So it seems like routine for most of these guys gives them a peace of mind so they can absolutely ride their best. Now all this is going to be out the window being in Utah for a month, racing every three days, you know, uh, unfamiliar confines, like there's just a lot going on that will be nothing like what they're used to. So will they be able to practice? That's one of my questions. Uh, I was told that in the meeting they they said it would be very unlikely that they would be able to ride in the stadium on the off days because that time would be needed to change the track around, right? Because if think about it, this first race is on May 31st they race, you know, during the day, finish up that night. And then the next race is on Wednesday. So basically that gives them Monday and Tuesday to start over. They, they will probably flatten many of the jumps and have to rearrange everything and get it all dialed in to be ready to go racing on Wednesday morning. Again, That that's not a lot of time, 48 hours. They can do it obviously, but it doesn't give guys any time to, to practice in there. Now. Another aspect of that is remember the outdoor series, the Lucas Oil Pro Motocross Series, is starting July fourth, right? And and this series is going to be going on full steam ahead in June. And under normal circumstances, those guys would be riding, you know, one day of outdoors minimum per week, and I would say probably even more than that. You know, this this would normally be during the the April month and then the beginning of May, but they would really be shifting gears towards outdoors and ramping up some of their training, some longer bike rides, you know, uh, talking about a 30 minute, 35 minute race twice versus this 20 minute, uh, sprint that we have in supercross. So they really have to angle their training to be stronger muscularly and cardiovascularly to be able to go longer. And it's just a different, a different training focus. And I obviously lived through it for, you know, 15 years. So it's nothing that they're not used to, but it does take time. It does take in my experience, at least a month to really find your outdoor legs from when you start to, you know, it's time to go racing. And even then you look at the results. Some of these guys don't even get up to speed really until round two, round three, to where they're feeling a hundred percent after, you know, seven or eight months of, of straight supercross riding and racing. So to get back to the question, are they going to be able to ride outdoors during the week in Utah? Will there be a track that they are allowed to attend. And, you know, what I'm using air quotes around expose themselves to other people. I, I don't know. I don't know how they can stop that. There are tracks in the, in the salt lake, greater salt lake area to practice on. There's no doubt about that. I, I know that area very well living one state away. My question is, will they be allowed to go and how does that all work out? Because they don't have a lot of time. My guess would be if they are allowed, you know, the, the teams will bring practice bikes on the semi, right? They would pack their, all the, the trucks are in California right now, wherever their race shop is, they would load practice bikes and practice equipment on their truck with tons of parts and everything they would need for that seven round span. Well, they could bring their test bikes or practice bikes, all the things they would need. And then race Sunday, which is May 31st, the first round take, you know, Monday, Tuesday off. They would probably just do light training, bicycle rides, stuff like that. Then they would race again. The second round is Wednesday. They would be able to take Thursday off and then possibly get in an outdoor day of testing or riding on Friday. That gives them really, you know, that Wednesday to Sunday is the biggest gap in their, you know, per two rounds per week uh, schedule that they could maybe get some riding in on, on Friday. The problem is you don't want to go overboard. You know, and, and a typical outdoor day of training would be at minimum two 35 minute motos. And then a lot of guys are going to do more than that. They're going to do sprints. They're going to do corner practice. They're going to do all of that on top of their two 35 minute motos. You don't want to do too much though, because remember you're just coming off of a race on Wednesday. So you're, you're still recovering a bit, but although a supercross isn't the end of the world as far as workload. So they're going to work, do that work on Friday. They would have Saturday to recover and then race again on Sunday. So if they're able to ride outdoors, they're not going to be able to go full bore because they're going to want to make sure that they're rested and recovered and ready, you know, to race again on Sunday. So there's a lot of things to work out there. I'm sure Alden Baker has walked himself through this schedule and program many, many times. And for a guy like Alden, he has had a program that's worked for a very long time and it's very repetitive. They, They become very robotic, honestly, from what I've witnessed, the riders, he's trying to build very high performing motocross robots. They only know how to do one thing and that's go very fast on a motorcycle and all of the things they do, whether it's their diet, they're off the bike training, bicycling, running all the riding they do every, you know, they're very much into yoga. Now, all those things are geared towards being the absolute best supercross and motocross racer on the planet. There, there is nothing else. There are no distractions allowed. Uh, everything else becomes secondary to accomplishing those goals. So now this throws a wrench into what the normal program would be. He's surely got a plan. You know, I I would just assume it's different than any other plan he's ever had because the schedule is different. The recovery times are different. The location is different. So unique times. And it'll be interesting to watch how this all plays out and that's, you know, I get back to the media being around to document all that. And, you know, we obviously have great relationships with writers like Zach Osborne and Ken Roxon and all these guys who I think will be pretty open about what they're doing and how they're approaching this. I think, especially after the series is done, you know, once the seven rounds are run, I think they will be very open to sharing what they did and what they didn't because I don't think we're going to see a time like this again so it's not like they're giving away some big trade secrets that you know they're gonna have to utilize next year because I, I think this is a very unique time and obviously it's the first time we've ever encountered anything like this. So that's one of the the aspects aspects that I will be most interested in is is learning what these guys did, what they didn't do, when they rested, when they didn't, how they approached the upcoming outdoor season, if you know all the changes that the the coaches and trainers out there made along the way too because again there is no roadmap for how to do this another question obviously this is one that you know is is very common throughout the sport right now is who does this favor does it favor eli tomac does it favor ken Roxon? does it favor the the two guys on the outside looking in and in, in barsha and cooper webb i don't know i if you look at the results you know, this has been a fantastic race over the years for Eli Tomac. If you go back and watch his 2017 Salt Lake Supercross, you would think that he had never been beaten at a race in his life. He was so much better than everybody on the track that night. He's also had a couple rough Salt Lakes, but I do believe that Salt Lake has been very kind to Eli. And I think it's a combination of things. I think he's very comfortable on this dirt. He's from Colorado and if you've never been or ridden in the Utah, Colorado, Idaho type dirt, it's got this weird feel to it. And it was very challenging for me when I first moved here to learn how to ride it. It gets very hard packed. It's much more slippery than anything I was used to coming from Florida. And it's, it's kind of got this gravelly texture to it. And it's certainly something to be learned and riders who grew up on it seem to have extra traction where I did not. And I think that comes into play for, for Tomac a little bit. And I think it's why he rides so well at a track like Salt Lake. So maybe that favors him a little bit. Another aspect to it is the altitude, you know, uh, Salt Lake's at 4,500 feet, give or take. And, you know, he lives at very high elevation. I want to say, uh, Colorado where he lives is around 8,000 feet. Don't quote me on that. I'm not hundred percent positive. I do know it's very high elevation where Eli lives though. And he likes that. Obviously, his his father was a mountain bike world champion and used that altitude training to increase his cardiovascular capabilities. And I'm sure that benefits Eli as well. To me, though, it matters more with the motorcycle. And if you've never ridden at altitude, then it would be shocking for you to see how much slower the bike is when you go to altitude. And I remember my first time really dealing with it was going to Salt Lake, this very Supercross we have coming up in the 2001 season. And I was on factory Husqvarna and our, my bike was terribly slow already, but I went out for the first practice and I, I remember coming in and saying, listen, there has to be something wrong with my motorcycle. It cannot be this slow. There's no way that my bike can be this slow normally. And it was, it was just the altitude it, you know, there's so little oxygen in the air compared to sea level that, you know, the, the horsepower comes way down that, that combustion engine just isn't as efficient. So I think Eli being so used to how the, the bike runs at altitude and how to milk the power out of it, I think it will help him a little bit. And I have no real evidence of that, or I, I don't have something to point to and say, yep, this is why. It's just what I believe. I think there is something to be gained from all that experience riding at altitude. But again, I don't believe Ken Rockson is, is doomed. I don't want it to come across as that. But we're all looking for who has an edge, you know, who has any advantage at all when you give seven rounds in a row to one particular venue. You know, if, what, if, what if there were seven rounds in a row at Daytona, right? We would all be pointing to Tomac. But if there was some other round where maybe Roxon was just unbelievably strong, we would point to him. So there has to be some advantages, disadvantages, even if it's just fractions of a a percent of margin, right? But that could be the difference when you have seven rounds in a row. So it's just something to keep an eye on. Another question I have is how vocal will Ken Roxon be about this whole ordeal? And we know he's been pretty vocal in the early stages, right? Before any of this plan was official, or we had any real direction, he wasn't thrilled. He kind of came out and said it was too early. We weren't ready. You know, there was too much unknown about the virus, worry of exposure, worries of catching it. And of course, Kenny has uh, some unique complications in that aspect. You know, he has a suppressed immune system, I don't really know why we've heard rumors of why he does or why he doesn't, but he, he certainly is affected by uh, these complications and he suffered from it all summer last year. If you remember how how tough of a summer he had where he just couldn't finish motos and his body was just fighting something all summer long. So yeah, it's a concern, right? We, we know how bad COVID-19 can be for people with underlying issues. So I think he has a right to be worried. So how does he channel that? Does he say anything on television? Does he say stuff on his social media? I don't know. I hope not, personally. I'm, I'm very okay with him doing it. Let's start there. Everyone has the right to express their feelings. That's, that's number one. But I just hope he doesn't do anything to give those people leverage that are looking to pile on, that would be very unfortunate because I know Kenny's heart is in the right place, but there are many detractors out there whose hearts would not be in the right place. And this would give them ammo to go do terrible things within the media. And I just hope we don't go down that path. But that was one thing I thought about was how does Kenny respond to this? What does he bring to the table? Especially if things don't go well, right? Because in the heat of the moment, you let the, emotions of the moment get the best of you. And he could say something that he didn't doesn't even really mean. It's just kind of in the back of his mind. And then he's pissed off about a result or something. And he says something that we really can't take back. So I just hope that doesn't happen. And it, we don't even have to go down that road and Kenny could win the, the race, right? He's been so good this year. So maybe it won't, won't happen at all. It was just one of the things I wrote down as a, as a question that should be posed. Another thing I have to wonder is, do we go back to how it looked at the beginning of this series? Now think about how it looked leaving Anaheim one. And I stayed the week between Anaheim one and St. Louis and I went down to San Diego on Sunday and watched football, which was amazing. And I had all this time by myself, especially on Sunday. And then on Monday I began work for fly racing, but had all this time to kind of reflect on the race. With, you know, I was by myself at a hotel and, and just thinking about the race and who did what and how it all looked. And, you know, AC and Barsha were just dominant at that race. They were so much better than everybody else. You know, Roxen and Tomac really weren't even in the picture. You know, they were running around five, six, seven range, you know, 20 seconds off the lead, maybe more it was really the AC Barsha show and, and Cooper Webb fought through whatever illness he was dealing with to, to get a third, but he really wasn't in the mix either so much. Do we go back to that? Does all of this time with, you know, since it looks to be back to a hundred percent, do we revert back to that January time coming off of a big layoff where those guys are back to the form they showed in January? And Barsha has been good. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, Atlanta was awesome. But his speed at the first two rounds of Anaheim one and St. Louis was really remarkable. It was it was just great. And AC certainly has a two. AC was just a little loose, right? You could say he he was on his way to winning that Anaheim one round if he doesn't you know, case that triple and then lose time. And, and I also believe there were some rookie jitters going on, right? To come in and win your first ever supercross at Anaheim one would be, would have been huge. And, and I think there was a lot going on in AC's mind in those moments other than what he was doing. I think he was thinking about the moment and all, you know, what it was going to be like to win. And instead of thinking about that triple out of the corner, he just made a big mistake because that's what happens when you get distracted. I've done it many times myself. When you think about other things and you're not focused on exactly what you're doing, yeah, it's easy to make a mistake at that level. And I wasn't even anywhere near the level of guys like AC and and Barsha winning a Supercross, but I I still know kind of what happens in that moment anyway. So I'm just wondering how that looks, right? Because Roxanne and Tomax really struggled early in the season coming off and Eli's notorious for that. He is notorious for a slow start. We've seen it time and time again, year in and year out his first few races, he takes forever to get going. And you look at the first two rounds of the series this year, and he wasn't even on the podium. He, he did ride very, very well at St. Louis. I mean, he, charged from way back to get to fourth, I believe without looking at it, but it's still, if you go, you know, six, four or whatever at these first two rounds of the seven race span, that's going to be really difficult to pull back from. And a guy like Cooper Webb, obviously Ken Roxon, Justin Barsha too, they could really capitalize on a slow start from anyone. And if I'm Cooper Webb, Justin Barsha needs to be lumped in there too. But more specifically, I'm looking at Cooper Webb. This is a fantastic opportunity to get back into this championship fight. Because you've had time to reflect. I know those guys have been riding Supercross relentlessly down there in Florida, getting ready for this run. And, and I think that if you're Cooper Webb, you haven't conceded anything. You are absolutely still in this Supercross championship fight. Whether Ken Rox and Eli Tomac want to believe that kind of doesn't matter. They can believe whatever they want. The points are going to dictate who wins this title. So you go out and you go win the first round, if you're Cooper Webb, you can change the momentum and the direction of this championship really quickly. And I think that's the message that Alden Baker has been hammering home. And I don't know that. I'm speculating, of course. But that's what I would be doing. If, I'll, if I'm Alden Baker, I am cracking the whip for Cooper Webb to go out and win this first round and send a shot across the bow that, hey, this thing's not over. And those guys mess around talking about Tomac and Roxen, they mess around and get you know third or fourth, fifth. They fall over in the first turn. They do anything stupid, and that points lead goes from the low 20s, and now we're talking at under 15. Oh, boy, it's anybody's series. Now, of course, it could go the other way, where Tomac or Roxen go out and dominate, and now that points lead goes from low 20s to you know closer to 30, and then you've got a big problem on your hands. But just looking at all of the possible directions this could go, I don't for one second believe that it's over. I, I know we've been really looking at it that way as far as a two horse race. And I think that's because when we left Daytona, those guys were really the two left. They were kind of the two left standing. And we all felt like this was going to be a two man race to Salt Lake, which ironically it kind of is. But it, for me, it feels a little different than it did leaving Daytona. And maybe that's just the time. You know, we've had time to sit around and, and reflect on all this, but I just don't think it's going to be pick up right where we left off and Roxen and Tomac are dominating. I do think guys are going to be back in the mix. Guys are healthy again. And I think it's going to have rejuvenated all of these guys because regardless, whether it's your first year like Cincerillo or you're a 10 year veteran like Barsha, 10 rounds in a row wears on people. Ten weeks of traveling all over the country and racing every Saturday for you know two and a half months wears on you. It only gets worse as the Supercross stretch goes down. But those guys were certainly feeling that. And starting over now, they're going to be fresh. They're going to be right back to where we were in January, and it's going to be you know the points are certainly not going back to zero. But I believe that the momentum factor for these guys, you know, the momentum that Tomac and Roxon had built up over those ten rounds is now a race and it's now going to be anybody's race every single time the gate drops. And that, that's exciting for me. I don't like knowing who's going to be on the podium before the gate drops. You know, I, I want it to be a complete guessing game. And with the w- the way we have it now where everybody's healthy, that's what we're going to get. So it's, it's really like going back to Anaheim one, although we have a, a pretty established uh, point structure. Another thing I have here is does the daytime schedule matter and if you've taken the time to look at how these races are planned for now and keep in mind these are subject to change from NBC and NBC Sports on their television schedule they they are going to dictate when these races are run period they have the final say because above all else these races you know feld wants these races on TV the teams and sponsors want these races on live TV that's what matters So if NBC says, Hey, we're starting at noon or says, Hey, we're starting at 5. PM, I believe that Feld will respond and say, yep, that's absolutely when we're starting and we'll be ready to go. So right now though, the tentative schedule has these races going off, uh, pretty early in the day and they're more day schedule than what we're used to. Now, does that matter? I guess is the question. Does it help or hurt anyone? I don't know. I don't, I can't specifically say it helps or hurts anyone, but it's certainly different. It's not going to have the same nighttime supercross vibe that we're all used to. Maybe we could deal with some shadow issues, but more importantly, May and June, especially early June in Utah, the weather is completely unpredictable. We could get rain. I'm going to hope there's no snow anymore. Uh, it's certainly possible. It's not impossible. But rain is very much in play for, you know, one of these rounds to be muddy. So it's just a very, uh, fluid time for the weather in this area of the country. And that could play a factor, right? Salt Lake Rice Stadium does not have a roof. We've dealt with every, I've raced in the snow there going back to 2010 and 2011. It was snowing one year. It was raining like crazy the next year. So it it's happened in the past, but also keep in mind that was going back to April in those, those years. And April is a very, very chaotic weather time. I mean, it's, it's raining every other day in this area, sometimes snow in April. So maybe going to, to late May and early June, uh, smooth that out a little bit. But even as I sit here today, I'm in Idaho, you know, let's say 200 and some odd miles from salt Lake. It's pretty rainy today. It's not a, not an ideal day to go racing. So it's, it's certainly a possibility versus, I guess, the point I'm trying to make is comparing it to Glendale. You would have extremely uh, controlled conditions. We're not going to have that at all for Utah. And we're just going to have to hope the weather cooperates for seven random days, you know, in May and June. A little more sponsor talking here. I want to thank Blenzall. And those guys are on it. Every time I talk to David over there, he's got some other project going on. And this week he had an announcement that he has joined up with as an official partner of the AMA, which is pretty cool. And they're going to be a sponsor of AMA's uh, Vintage Motorcycle Days at Mid-Ohio, and that's July ten through twelve. So that's pretty awesome. Uh, obviously, Blenzall is very, very involved in the two-stroke side and vintage side. They sponsor Michael Lessie for the two-stroke national championships. Uh, so that's been really cool to watch them get back involved. And the message he wanted to share with this week was as we approach Father's Day, They have new gift cards. So if you want to buy something for your dad out there, maybe he's into riding. Obviously, you know, most of us, that's how we got into the sport was from our dad. Buy him a Blenzall gift card. So go check that out. They are on the online store at Blenzall.com and follow them at Blenzall on Instagram. Also want to thank Plum Creek Funding. Talked to Zach Morris this this morning to get my weekly update, and he said things are just chaotic. There are so many people trying to make moves in that that industry right now, whether they're buying or refinancing, trying to make the most of a very prime time for, you know, these interest rates. 30-year uh, 30 30 interest rates are down to 3%. If you do a 15-year, which I have been kind of mulling over, you can get a 2.75% loan on a fifteen year mortgage. That's crazy. That that's literally the lowest in history. We've never been this low before. So you go back to the eighties. I talked to a guy the other day. His mortgage, his interest rate in the late eighties was twenty percent. So now think about it. you you can get one for three percent or lower right now. That's crazy. So reach out to Zach if you want to get more information on that. It's his Instagram is at Plum Creek Funding. And his phone number is seven, two, zero, two, one, two, four, six, eight, five. And he'll get you dialed in and at least answer some questions anyway. Now back to the racing stuff. Uh, I really want to go to these races. And part of that is <laughs> boredom, right? I've been working from home and I haven't been in the office, which is cool, but I miss going to the races. I only got 10 races out of, you know, the normal 17 that I'm used to. And we would be wrapped. Remember today, I would be flying home from Hangtown normally. Actually, that's a lie. I was scheduled to be at Majora Italy for MXGP this weekend. So I've been missing all kinds of stuff. I missed a bunch of supercross rounds. I missed a trip that I would be sitting in Italy right now. I, it, it would be 8 31 PM as I record this in Italy. So I'd be at the hotel, the, uh, I believe I was staying at the Sheraton airport. And I'd probably be ordering room service and watching CNN, global CNN, which I, that's a whole different topic. That's probably what I would be doing. Instead, I'm sitting at my house watching uh, reruns on my television, waiting for this NASCAR to race to come on, and I've been at home for two months. So it's wild how much the world can change when you least expect it. Point being, I really wanna go to the races, I really wanna be a part of this historic seven race run. To the championship. Now, whether I can go, I don't know. I kind of covered that already. I'm waiting on word and it's not going to be my decision, but let's hope I at least get to go to at least one, right? Something. I want to be involved somehow, some way. And I even joked, even if they don't let me in the building to go to the race, I'm just going to drive down there and watch it at a sports bar. I don't, I just want to be a part of this thing somehow, some way. So we'll see, kind of see what happens there. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear, what your guys' thoughts are on where this goes, right? I have my feelings. Uh, I don't think this championship's over. I really don't think so. I think this break has been the opportunity for for Cooper Webb and Barsha to get back into this thing. And I'm leaning towards Cooper Webb getting it done. And that's to, not to say he's going to win the championship, but I, I think he's going to make this a championship fight again more than just two guys. I don't know why I don't, I don't have any insider info. It's just what I, what I feel. It's just my gut instinct is that Webb's going to pull off some miraculous result early in these seven rounds and make it, make it interesting. And maybe not, I I keep, you know, arguing both sides here, but Tomac could very easily come out and win the first round and shut that down immediately. Uh, but yeah, that's why they run the races, right? We we certainly don't know where it's going to go, nor do we want to. We want to be surprised two weeks from today on May thirty first. I also want to thank another sponsor, and I keep throwing in the, these in there to keep you guys off off guard. But I want to thank uh, Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia. If you guys are out riding, and, and I've talked to a ton of my friends today, they're all over the country. Some of them are at track. Some of them are at this uh, Justin Brayton event in Iowa. There's a GNCC race going on today in Georgia. Uh, Some guys were at Cahia in California yesterday. There are people riding everywhere right now, which is awesome. So if you need to get your bike restored, you want to get that two-stroke that's been in your garage, you want to get it dialed in, send off your stuff to Premier Vapor Blasting of Georgia. Mention mention the Industry Seating Podcast and you'll get 25% off. Those guys are doing fantastic work down there. Also want to talk about Works Connection. Now you guys have heard me mention the ProStart launch device that Works Connection kind of you know at one time I felt like they had the market cornered a little bit I used it forever uh there were a couple competitors that came along but I always felt like Works Connection was the go-to for many for many riders in this game and I think the one aspect they have that I really like the most about this this Works Connection Pro Start launch device is that it's really built for your bike And there are some other competitive products that are kind of a one size for all, you know, it's a a do it all type. I don't really love that. It looks very complicated to change from model to model and OEM to OEM to make it work different size forks and all kinds of stuff. The works connection one, if you have a 2019 KTM 450, guess what? You can buy a specific Start device a worst connection one that's built for your model specifically. It was engineered to do exactly what it's supposed to do on your bike. Not also fit your bike and also fit a, a you know 2009 KX450 and also a 2002 YZ250. To me, there is something to be said for having a product, a specific product built specifically for your application. It's that's always going to work the best in my opinion. So. Give the guys over at Works Connection a look, worksconnection.com, at Works Connection on social media. Now, I want to answer one of the listener questions I got this morning, and I appreciate you sending this in. And most of the questions I've gotten lately have been about, you know, pretty big picture uh, stuff with racing, which I get. Now, uh, Doug asks, what would help entice more teams to get into the Supercross fold? And he kind of goes a little bit into a lengthy diatribe here about, the old days of racing and how it was more uh feasible to get into racing with a 125 and you could compete with the factories. And he doesn't feel like that's really possible nowadays because of the costs of the bikes and how expensive it is to build a really good 250 or 450. And I I agree and I disagree. Uh if you're talking about the 125 class and the two fifty class, you know, the the current two fifty class, you're probably right. Uh, you know, let's take the monster star Yamaha team, their bikes are incredibly good, incredibly fast. Even teams like Mitch Payton and you know, TLD KTM, they're having a really tough time combating how strong those motorcycles are. Now, if you're going to start a privateer team and think you can compete with those engines and those bikes, yeah, probably not going to happen. What I would say on the other side of that though is the rider still matters. You're probably not going to be able to get a rider as a privateer team that can beat Dylan Ferrandis or Shane McElrath or Justin Cooper anyway. So to think that the bike is the biggest limiting factor, eh, I would probably disagree with that because you could put Dylan Ferrandes on a privateer Yamaha, and he may not win. You know, he may get beat by Austin Forkner, I, I can't say, but he's certainly going to be really fast and he's going to be on the podium. That's my feeling. That's that's my opinion is the bike matters, but the rider matters much more. You could interchange Forkner and Dylan Ferrandis, and I don't believe you'd see a whole lot of difference. I think those bikes are, are very competitive. Even if the Yamaha has a little bit of a power edge, and I don't know that to be fact, I think that's a common perception these days. It's not a huge advantage. And and I think Mitch Payton would probably argue there is any advantage. You know, we we don't see the dyno numbers. That's not public. And I don't know that Mitch Payton sees the dyno numbers for a a monster star Yamaha either. But I think the rider is always going to be the biggest factor in any conversation like that. And if you're trying to go racing and and it's really that big of a concern for you, Doug, go race the 450s because those bikes you can make very competitive very easily and there's power to burn. You're not going to find especially a privateer guy that is outriding the capability of his 450. It's just not going to happen. You can and you can make a very fast 450 very very easily. Yeah, it costs some money. I get it. You got to buy cams, you got to you got to do some things to the bike and and put some money in your ECU and do some things, but it's not a debilitating cost to have a very, very competitive 450. And whatever rider you can sign to ride for your team, they're not gonna be able to override a, a modified 450 anyway. So I understand your point is maybe it was easier 20 years ago to go racing and you could be competitive more easily. I still think it's very possible though. I don't think it's, uh, you know, some of the issues you're, you're talking about with costs. I still think if you get a great rider, the bikes are so great on a production level. You know, just off the showroom for the the bikes are phenomenal these days. You go get a factory edition KTM 450, you can go battle with anybody if you have the right rider. And yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. But yeah, so a couple different sides of the question. It is a good question. Costs are certainly way up. You know, for for stock bikes right off the showroom, we we're talking about a ten thousand dollar motorcycle. I understand that. But at the same time, that $10,000 motorcycle is incredibly competitive right off the showroom floor. Another question from Randy. Uh, I listened to the podcast um, talking about the the stories I had with how I got started at Fly Racing. It's pretty cool. Um, Yeah, I agree. I am thankful every single day to be a part of this great team we call Fly Racing. Now, his question, he has two questions. Number one, when Premier guys are going to the 450 class, does a company like fly racing consider which team they are landing on for which riders they want to hire? So, you know, pick a rider, like who's moving up, right? Dylan Ferrandis is probably move, moving up. If fly racing was going to sign Dylan Ferrandis, and being hundred percent transparent, we don't have any plans to not saying we will not saying we won't, but we do not have a plan to at this moment. Would it matter where he rides as far as does it, you know, would we rather see him on team X versus team Y? And I think it does, it's not the same for every possible scenario, but I can tell you kind of how we look at it and it varies a little bit, right? Because we look at it big picture and then we, you know, so micro and macro, big picture, we look at it, we want to have athletes spread across several different OEMs so we can advertise certain colors. And we can spread ourselves across the gamut of fans, right? If you have, you're a diehard Honda guy, we'd like to have at least one Honda rider out there to that appeals to you, right? And the same thing goes for every brand for Yamaha and KTM. We really try to have all of our colors and OEMs covered for that specific reason. Now, the difference can be if we're going after a specific rider and we just, we really want to be involved with said rider, right? Trey Kennard was that guy. Zach Osborne was that guy. We made concerted efforts to go after that guy, regardless of where he was going. If he told us he was riding for, you know, Zach Osborne said he was going to ride for Husky, or if he said he was going to KTM or Honda or Yamaha, it wouldn't have mattered. We wanted to be affiliated with Zach Osborne and he can sort out the rest. That wasn't for us to decide. We were buying into him, not really buying into you know, his team or OEM or anything like that. So there are two different things going on, they're not always the same. Sometimes we want a rider on a, a certain brand and we we have made decisions based on that. Some guys you know, were maybe more expensive than we really wanted to be, but they had a spot on a factory team that we really wanted to be a part of. And other times we really weren't planning on making a move and I'll give you an example, trying to not get myself in trouble, but we really weren't sure if we were going to be able to retain Josh Grant or not because we were pretty full on budget and he was coming off a great year and he deserved more money than we had paid him the prior year that there was no doubt about whether he deserved it or not. The problem was we were, our budget was tapped. And we were going to have to dig deep and, and find money from other budget buckets to to pay him what he had earned the prior year, and a big part of that was he was on Monster Energy Kawasaki. He was Eli Tomac's teammate. That draws a lot of notoriety, that gets a lot of publicity, and being affiliated with Monster helps. It absolutely does, and that that played a role. We wanted to keep Josh. That wasn't the question. The question was. We didn't really have the budget to do it, but that got it done. You know, when we sat down and said, okay, this is a really premier spot and we need a Kawasaki guy. And he's also Eli Tomac's teammate. Yeah, let's make it happen. Let's get the deal done. So it, it can be a determining factor along with a lot of other things there, but really good question. Uh, in our particular situation for 2021, the negotiations we have ongoing right now, It's weighed in a little bit and I can't really give away too much because nothing's done, but it certainly helps when you, the rider you want, when he's going to go to one of the premier teams in the sport, that's a good thing. You know, that that's a good thing for his results. It's a good thing for your publicity. You know, you're, you're going to be represented in the the highest and best possible way. Uh, and that, that stuff all helps. Now the question number two, are you guys considering a refurbishment program for the formula helmet similar to the other major helmet companies? We have talked about it, but I, I don't believe that's in the, the near horizon. And for us, you know, the formula helmet is, is our baby. I mean, we, we love that particular item. And, and you want to talk about five years of development in one item. And, you know, we had over a million dollars in R and D into that one singular item, the formula helmet. So you can imagine how much excitement and emphasis and expectation there has been. And it's absolutely over delivered on all of those fronts. Now talking about refurbishing. There's a lot going on there. You need a separate facility to do that. You need, you know, examination and, um, basically a whole department that can execute a program like that. So it's not something we've looked at particularly yet I'm okay with competitors doing it good, good on them. Um, but in full transparency, which I'm always going to try to be with you guys, we are not considering it at the moment. We just want to make sure that we can continue to put our R and D dollars into development. And we have projects that are in process right now that you guys are going to see. That's really where we're pushing. Uh, it would cost a lot of money to develop a refurbishment program. We have repurposed those dollars to what's next, right? What's what's always going to be in the forefront of protection because at the end of the day, protecting your brain with the best possible technology out there should always be the goal. And that's our number one goal, period. That was what we set out for. Let's build the safest, most forward-thinking helmet in the world, period, bar none. That's the end of the story. And I truly believe we did it. And that's where we're redirecting our R&D dollars towards is continuing that protection level. So I hope that answers a little bit. I, I understand the the question as far as that would be really cool if we, we had decided to do that, but it was kinda, I don't want to say one or the other, but you can't do everything all at once. Um, there's only, you know, so many funds, you can repurpose certain directions and we wanted to make sure that we stayed on the cutting edge. And when people thought of a fly racing formula helmet, they absolutely correlate that to the best helmet in the world. That that's where we want to be. That's where I believe we are, and that's where we want to stay. So that's kind of it for this week. I appreciate everybody listening. Uh, a little shorter this week, coming up on an hour, but that's okay. I think we're you know we're getting back into the racing, which is exciting for me, and uh, certainly going to have a lot to talk about in the month of June. I appreciate all the sponsors again. Thank you so much to all of my new listeners and please send in questions. I only had a couple this week. Um, There is no stupid question, right? And the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm not going to read it on the air. That's literally the worst thing that can happen. I would never embarrass anyone or, or do anything like that. So please, if you just have random questions that you've wondered about, or certainly as we go through this very unique racing stint. Uh, There's going to be some unique questions that arise from it too, and I have certainly had my own. I shared some of those with you over the course of the past hour, but please keep them coming. You can email me at jason 36 at AOL.com. You can DM me via jason66thomas on social media. You can tweet me, uh, Instagram DM me. However, you can uh, just mention me in your your tweet, and I'll respond to it or respond on the air. And then uh, I have been facilitating and operating the fly racing USA, Facebook and Instagram for the past month or two. And that's been pretty interesting. You learn how engagement works with fans and what pictures work better than others. And I've really had to do a lot of homework on that side. So I've been trying to inc- improve, you know, our, uh, our exposure level and share messages with all of you guys out there. So check out fly racing USA, social media, and I'm on the end other end of that social media side. So if you're you're commenting and liking pictures. That's, that's me that sees it. So I appreciate that. And again, we'll talk to you next Sunday. See you guys.